All right, we are in Second Thessalonians tonight, Second Thessalonians chapter three, and uh, we're going to read to the conclusion of the chapter, chapter three of Second Thessalonians, beginning in verse six, uh, reading down to the end of the chapter, and we're going to think about Paul's reprimand, Paul's reprimand uh, to the church. Last week we saw his request and his reassurance. Now in verse 6 we see his reprimand. And he says in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busy bodies. Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means, the Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle. So I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. I trust the Lord will indeed bless the reading of his word this evening. As we come to the last in our series in First and Second Thessalonians. And of course, this is Paul's eschatological epistle. Every chapter of First uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, makes reference to the coming of the Lord. And the Lord's coming gives us every reason to have hope in this life and as we anticipate his appearance. But it gives us no reason for indolent or careless living. In his previous epistle, Paul had flagged up the fact that there were some who, owing to their own misapplication of end-time truth, were walking disorderly and living lives that he described as unruly. And clearly not much had changed between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. So as he closes out this epistle, he brings a reprimand against those who are unruly and he addresses the issue within this church. Notice his reprimand there beginning in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, he's going to bring to bear the idea of discipline. And uh, the treatment now that he's going to require is for those who walk disorderly. And what he has to say here is much sterner than what he's already said. If you go back to First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 11, he makes reference to uh, those who refuse to work. And indeed, he brings them an exhortation. He beseeches them that they, that they uh, can increase more and more. In verse 11, he says, And that you study to be quiet. 
and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So there was an exhortation. And then in chapter 5 and verse 14, uh, we find that there was a warning. He says, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Now in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, we've gone beyond exhortation and warning to withdraw uh, from those who are walking disorderly. And sometimes the misbehavior of, of believers recall, requires us to exercise uh, church discipline and even separation from the wrongdoer. Paul says that we ought to withdraw ourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. And the word withdraw is an interesting word. It refers to a sailing ship in which they are, uh, they are furling in the sail. It, you know, it's, it's the idea is they're pulling the sail in. It's shrinking back. It's retreating into itself. And, and that's the idea. You know, one day we have open fellowship with these people. We're quite happy to embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. But now they're behaving disorderly in an unruly way. We withdraw. We shrink away from them. And we make a difference between them and the other people in the fellowship. And now it doesn't mean that the offender is to be altogether cut off, that he becomes our enemy. But it means that he no longer enjoys the intimacy of fellowship that was once uh, his. Now this process of discipline, of discipline is, uh, is detailed further in verses 14 and 15. He says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but, as, but admonish him as a brother. So what we're, what we're to understand here is this. When someone is walking unruly, when someone is bringing reproach upon the fellowship, when someone is hurting the testimony of Christ within the church, well then we as a church have to take a decision that we're no longer going to uh, fellowship with that person to, uh, to a large degree. They're no longer welcome at our love feast. We're no longer to engage them in, in uh, participating in any kind of fellowship meal. And indeed, if they will be refused access to the Lord's table. Now, this idea is repugnant in the minds of a lot of modern Christians. It's seen as unkind. It's seen as uh, unchristian. And it's a rare day when most churches actually discipline someone because of the way they're living. And yet the purpose of this discipline, and this is the thing I want you to get, this is vital. It's not retribution, it's restoration. We're not looking to just avenge ourselves on someone. We want that person to sit up and think, well, what have I done wrong? And how can I make it right? And we encourage them uh, to make that thing right. So we're treating them not as an enemy, but as a brother. Now this is different from what the Jehovah's Witnesses practice. The Jehovah's Witnesses practice a thing called shunning. And uh, when they shun you, they basically absolutely and utterly disown you. They'll, not, they'll cross over the other side of the street if they see you coming. Uh, they won't talk to you in any setting. They won't be polite. They won't be kind. Uh, you know, they will, if you're a family member, they won't eat with you in your own home. You know, if you're shunned as a Jehovah's Witness, your own family will eat apart from you. That is not what Paul intended. He says this person is not an enemy. He's a brother. 
And you're to treat him as a you're to, you're to treat him as a brother. The point is that that there is a measured response to his misbehavior. That you're acknowledging the wrong, you're disfellowshipping him, or you're withdrawing fellowship from him, and you're withdrawing access to the Lord's table. But if I see him walking down the street, I'll be kind to him, I'll speak to him, I'll say hello to him, I'll be polite to him, I'll be Christian toward him. You know, if I find he's in a particular trouble, you know, if his wife passes away, I won't ignore that hurt, I won't pretend it's nothing to do with me, I'll still send a sympathy card, I'll still go to the funeral, I'll still be uh, gracious and Christian in that respect. And so you've got to be balanced about this thing, otherwise it looks more like revenge than restoration. And so really this is a, a big brotherly response to a, to a sin and to misbehavior in somebody's life. Look in Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. Matthew chapter 18, of course, this is where the Lord Jesus flags up the idea of disciplining someone who has caused an offense. And in Matthew chapter 18, he talks about how that you ought to go to the person uh, who's offended you and tell uh, and tell them their fault between you and him alone and then if he doesn't hear you you come along with uh, some witnesses and I always stress at this point that you bring witnesses they're not a posse they're not going along there to harangue the person they're going simply to witness whether or not there was an honest effort at reconciliation and then if that doesn't work it goes to the church and the church has something to say about it but notice what it says here in Matthew 18 and verse 15 moreover if thy brother shall trespass against thee go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone if he shall hear thee notice what it says thou hast gained thy brother so remember we're always dealing with brethren when we're dealing with Christian people. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 4 and 5 where Paul raises the specter of a believer who is involved in an illicit relationship with his father's wife, maybe his stepmother, uh, hopefully not his mother but you never know but here we go in uh, verses 4 and 5 he tells the church in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when you're gathered together that my spirit and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh notice that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus so there's the aim there's the purpose we're trying to save the spiritual life of this one against whom we are corporately acting. And so uh, such action is taken against those who are willfully disobedient, those who are unrepentant. Paul talks about those who walk disorderly. Let's look again there in Second Thessalonians for a moment. Chapter 3. So he says, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother. And notice the emphasis again on the brother that walketh disorderly. And the, and the Greek word for walk there indicates a determined stride, a, a purposeful stride. And the word disorderly it speaks of a soldier who has stepped out of rank. He's deliberately left his unit and he's marching in an altogether different path. I don't know if you ever saw this, but a number of years ago, you know, maybe four or five years ago, there was a guardsman 
on Buckingham Palace and he was standing right outside the palace and of course that's a that's an, a job that you know that any soldier would feel himself privileged to be given uh, but it's pretty boring if the truth be told because you're standing there you know for however many hours it could be you know sun rain snow whatever you're standing there and there are Hundreds of tourists taking your picture. If you're unfortunate enough to be outside the gates, they're trying to make you laugh and doing all kinds of silly stuff. And it's, and it's a dull job uh, for a soldier. And so every now and then you'll see them, they'll turn, they'll march, you know, so many steps, and then they'll turn and go back and they'll go step, and then they'll stand in their sentry box and they'll wait there for 10 or 15 minutes, and then they'll go this way. And, and this fellow decided to, you know, break the monotony of it all. And he did a pirouette. You know what a pirouette is, don't you? He did a little twirl. So he stepped out of his sentry box and he did this. And he carried on. And everybody thought it was funny. The tourists loved it. It became a viral video on YouTube. Everybody was watching it. The newspapers covered it. But guess who did not appreciate it? The British Army. The British Army were not happy about it at all. And he was disciplined. He was sent to the guardhouse, I forget for how long, for a couple of weeks or whatever, to think about his actions. You see, the army can't let that go. They can't turn a blind eye to it. They can't say, well, isn't that funny? Because if you let one soldier do it, guess what happens? Everybody starts doing it. And the whole thing becomes a circus. And so they have to maintain rank. They have to maintain order and actually the army did the right thing you might say well they lacked a sense of humor you know they should have seen the funny side of it but wait a minute being a soldier on charge in charge of the uh of of guarding buckingham palace the the very home of the head of state is not a time to be larking about and so the army did the right thing now sometimes believers step out of rank You know, we're all marching one way and this other person decides they're going to go off on their own path and they're going to do their own thing and they're going to behave in a way that hurts the fellowship overall. So here Paul commands church discipline of those who enter into strident misconduct, who are not walking in step with the standards of God's word. He refers to it there as the tradition which he received of us. Now, he doesn't mean uh, a church tradition, but he's talking about apostolic uh, tradition as in the truth that was conveyed to the churches by means of word from the apostles or by letter from the apostles. And he says, this kind of Christian, the Christian who steps out of rank, has to be corrected. Now, in terms of the Thessalonian church, that correction begins by reminding them of Paul's own conduct. Notice what he says in verse 7 and 8, right there, actually down to verse 10. He says, For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, for nothing, but brought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So once more, we're reminded that the evangelist's life must complement 
his message. The preacher must practice what he preaches. And Paul had already made the point that he had done just that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. And so Paul's example, uh, Paul, Paul was exemplary before them. You know, he hadn't put a foot wrong in this area, and they knew it. He had worked while he was among them. He hadn't charged them uh, for his own expenses or for a, 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 to, to provide a salary for him in any way. Uh, he had simply got on with his trade as a tent maker, and he did this for the sake of the gospel. So it couldn't be said he was just there, as many Greek orators were, to pick up a paycheck. He was there with an important message. He was there with the message of Christ. And so uh, he would have no pay, but he worked extraordinarily hard whilst others paid for him, uh, paid for his survival in that place and provided for himself through uh, his trade. And nobody could gainsay that. Nobody could say to Paul, well, actually, you know what, Paul, you were lazy. Or you know what, Paul, you know, you relied on, on people, you relied among our number for, uh, for your daily bread. Nobody could say that of him. His ministry hadn't cost them a single penny, although he reminds them as a church that uh, he uh, could have put them under obligation to support him. He says uh, there in, uh, in verse, uh, verse where, let me just pick it up here. Verse 9, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you. He says, we have the power uh, to make ourselves chargeable. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, that those who preach the gospel should live off the gospel. And so there is a requirement of the church to take care of some folks who are full-time and preaching the gospel. But Paul did not charge this church, and yet he labored night and day. He wasn't a burden on anybody in the fellowship. Now put that away in your mental mill because that's important as this develops. Paul's life was the epitome of integrity and industry. He was honest. He was hardworking. And what he taught them was no different from what he personally practiced. He had taught them the importance of a work ethic, both when he was at Thessalonica as well as in the words of his first epistle. Now we come to verse 10. He says, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work Neither should he eat. Now notice carefully the wording of this verse. It is, if any would not work. Notice that. There's a difference between a man who cannot work and a man who will not work. There's a difference. You know, the purpose of God has ever been that our needs should be provided for by honest labor. You know, under the Old Testament economy, uh, those who had no work were provided for by farmers leaving the corners of their fields unharvested. So the farmer would sweep around the corner of his field and he would leave grain in the corner for the poor. But guess what? If the poor didn't come out and get the grain, he starved. He was expected to work for that little bit of food. It wasn't just handed to him on a plate. 
The farmer didn't harvest it and then prepare it and give it over to him. No, you had to go out and pick it up. If you remember the story of Ruth, that's exactly what she had to do. She had to go out and, of course, Boaz left her little handfuls on purpose. Uh, But in that respect, he showed her a grace. But normally, if you had to rely on charity in that way, you simply had to go out into the field and you had to uh, work for yourself and, and pull up the crop yourself and take care of it yourself. And that's perfectly acceptable. That's perfectly right. One of the problems in our country today is there are many, many people who expect handouts for nothing. And you know what? Those, these folks have always been here. You know, whenever I was a young fella, this was an ongoing problem, and it's still an ongoing problem. Now, again, we're not talking about people who can't work. We're not talking about people who are disabled. We're not talking about people uh, who are infirm in some way. We're not talking about the sick. We're not talking about uh, either people who've just been made redundant and who are in search of a job. We're talking about those folks who've neither had a job nor want to have a job and are relying entirely on the state to provide for them. Let me tell you, as a Christian, that's an unacceptable uh, behavior. Uh, this is what's sometimes referred to, uh, as, as we read of it here, as the so-called Protestant work ethic. And, and clearly, you know, there were some people in this church who who, who didn't practice this ethic. Uh, they, you know, Paul's already raised the fact that they were living off the charity of others. And so now he comes to verse 11, and he's going to rebuke them. For he says, for we hear there are some which walk among you disorderly. And now he's specific, working not at all but our busy bodies. Now then that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Notice this. They work not at all, but they're busy bodies. What an attitude for a believer to have. You know, idleness and nosiness often go hand in hand. They were busy bodies, but they weren't busy in the right way. They were busy in the wrong way. The old saying is the devil makes, uh, makes work for idle hands. They were meddling in other people's lives. In the words of Warren Wearsby, they had time on their hands and gossip on their lips, and they defended themselves by saying, the Lord is coming. Paul instructed them to work with quietness. That's what he told them to do. To work with quietness, that is, without a fuss in verse 12. Without making a song and a dance about it. They were to provide for themselves. Now, you can imagine, and you can only imagine perhaps the frustration of those believers in that fellowship who were working very hard day in and day out to take care of the needs of their own household. And yet with all these people who were not working were coming into their homes, eating their food and expecting a handout. And if you said to them, why don't you get a job? They'd say, why would I get a job? Sure isn't the Lord coming. He might come today. What's the point of me getting a job? Sure isn't Jesus coming. And Paul is rebuking this attitude. And he's saying that's not the right approach. That's not the way in which we apply the truth of the second coming. And evidently, uh, you know, they would have been an irritation and a frustration to other people in the fellowship who were having to hand out for them, who were having to meet their needs and, and felt like they were being taken advantage of. Have you ever been in a church situation where you felt somebody was taking advantage of you? 
Years and years ago when Hayes and I first got married, there was a fellow in our church who stood up one night in the prayer meeting and uh, he asked for prayer for himself because he was uh, in dispute constantly with his father as a consequence of his Christian testimony. His father was unhappy about him attending the church and there would be arguments in the home and he just asked that you know, God might work that thing out and that you know, he could get away from all the, the ferocity of the, uh, of the uh, dispute between them. And uh, his and I were listening to this, and, and so we discussed it together, and we said, well, why don't we do this? You know, we don't we only live around the corner from him. Why don't we ask him around the our house, if he, tell him that if he's in a dispute with his dad, if his dad is getting contentious, instead of entering into a fight with him, why not just come on around? He can stay in our house. You know, previously he'd been just walking the streets and stuff. He said, come around to our house. You can stay, you know, spend the evening with us. And uh, then go back after a little while and things maybe have calmed down uh, and so on. And so that's what happened. He, he came. He came the first night and that was fine. Uh, and then he came the next night and the night after that and the night after that and the night after that and the night after that. And he stayed longer and longer and longer and longer. And he was starting to stay past midnight. And Hazel, being a gracious woman as she is, said to me one night, I'm going to bed, you talk to him. <laughs> and so I sat with him, two o'clock, three o'clock, half past three. Now I had to get up and go to work the next morning. I had to leave home at eight o'clock. I'd be up at seven o'clock and then out the door for eight o'clock to get to work for nine o'clock. And this fellow didn't work at all. And so he would leave my house at half past three and he would go back to his house and sleep the day out. And then he'd come to my house about 8 o'clock. Oh, I've had an argument with my dad. Oh, great. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. I was sitting there with matchsticks holding up my eyes at my desk in the mornings. Could hardly see my, see my desk in front of me. And then... You know, he would discuss the Bible the whole time he was there. You know, he'd be, what do you think about this doctrine? What do you think about this verse? What do you think about this Greek word? And on and on and on he would go. And I was praying. I said, Lord, I'm going to have to tell him. I'm going to have to tell him. He's, he's got to stop this. And so one night he was going on. It was maybe half past two in the evening and in the morning. And he was going on and on and on. What do you think about this verse? What do you think about that verse? And the Lord had given me a wee verse that day. And I says, what do you think about this verse? Proverbs 25, 17. Withdraw thy foot from thy neighbor's house, lest he be weary of thee and hate thee. <laughs> I said, what do you think of that verse? <laughs> well, he got the message. He didn't come back. Praise the Lord. <laughs> but he was taking advantage. You know, he was, he was going beyond what was reasonable. And, you know, whereas we had graciously reached out to him and tried to be a help to him, he was taking advantage of that. And by the time this whole thing had developed, instead of wanting to be gracious toward him, you were, you were beginning to hate the thought of him coming. You were beginning to be frustrated. You felt like, well, you know, he's really turned the backside out of this thing. Now, Paul exhorts the Thessalonian believers who were feeling that way, who were feeling sinned against, and who were frustrated not to give up doing right. He says, but ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. He says, don't stop being gracious. Don't stop being generous. Don't stop being a giver. 
Carry on with that. That's a good thing. The believer needs to do right no matter what others do or no matter what others do to him. And if there are those in the fellowship who are flagrantly disobeying the word of God and becoming a burden to the church, well, verses 14 and 15 give us the means for tackling that. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, have no company with him, that he be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Then we come to verses 16 down through 18. And here's his closing prayer. He says, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So as he customarily does, Paul closes out this epistle with a prayer for those to whom he is writing. Now at the outset of this chapter, he had requested prayer from them. But now he is seen to be praying for them. And he has three petitions uh, concerning uh, them in respect to this prayer. First of all, he prays uh, for peace. Now this is not unusual in itself for, uh, for we find many of Paul's epistles he ends with this desire for believers. But perhaps it's a little bit more uh, poignant or, uh, or pertinent perhaps uh, at Thessalonica given the depth of the suffering that they were experiencing under persecution. It also applies to the growing weariness of those who were seeking to live in a right way whilst be taken advantage of by those who refused to work. He says, you know what, Lord, give them peace. Don't let them fall out with each other. Don't let them get angry. Don't let them get vengeful. Uh, give them peace. And the one thing that is striking is that Paul in this context roots the peace of the church in the Lord of peace himself. He says, now the Lord of peace himself give you peace. And Spurgeon in that respect said this, I want to call particular attention to the apostle's words in this place. He does not say, may the Lord of peace send his angel to give you peace. It were a great mercy if he did. And we might be as glad as Jacob was at Mahanaim when the angels of God met him. He does not even say, may the Lord of peace send his minister to give you peace. If he did, we might be as happy as Abraham when Melchizedek refreshed him with bread and wine. He does not even say, may the Lord of peace at the communion table or in the reading the word or in prayer or in some other sacred exercise give you peace. In all these we might be refreshed. But he says, the Lord of peace himself give you peace as if he alone in his own person could give you peace, and as if his presence were the sole means of such divine peace as he desires. So he prays for peace. He prays for a sense of the Lord's presence. Notice he says, the Lord be with you all. The Lord be with you all. Now the latter is essential to the former. There can be no peace in the heart, without the presence of Christ in the heart. And there can be no peace in the church unless Jesus is at the heart of the church. Let me encourage you, let me exhort you as a fellowship here at Points Pass that we always make it our business to put the Lord Jesus first, to keep him at the heart of all that we do. You when churches get into trouble, They get into trouble when people start following their own agenda. 
seeking their own interests, becoming selfish in their spirit, one toward another. But if we keep Christ at the heart, well then, friends, that certainly will bring us peace, or it will certainly contribute uh, to peace, because we'll all want the same thing. We'll all want the Lord glorified. And then he prays in the last verse, for the grace of God. You know, as with 1 Thessalonians, this whole thing comes full circle. He opens this book with the grace and he ends with the grace of God. It's all grace from beginning to end. Saving grace, securing grace, sanctifying grace, strengthening grace. It's all God's grace. And then notice verse 17. He signs the letter with his own hand. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand which is the token of every epistle, so I write. Now, many of Paul's letters were written by uh, an amuensis, that is, a secretary. That's a fancy word for a secretary, an amuensis. If you want to know how to spell it, see me afterwards. (laughs) If you don't want to know how to spell it, work with secretary, okay? But somebody else, would write the epistle. Paul would dictate it. He would write the, they, they would write the, the uh, content. And then when they got to the end, as is customary when you've got a secretary, he would sign it. Now, here's the interesting thing about Paul's signature. It was in large letters. Paul, Paul wrote with a, uh, with a very large uh, signature. He signed his name in very large uh, letters. And uh, you can see that in, uh, in Galatians, for example, where he says to them, you see how large a letter I've written you. He's proving to them that he wrote that epistle. Now, the book of Galatians is only six chapters long. It's not Paul's longest or largest epistle. So when he says, you see how large a letter I've written you, he's not referring to the contents of Galatians. He's talking about his signature at the end of Galatians, which authenticated that epistle. And because the Thessalonians had been subject to uh, false prophets and false preachers and especially false epistles, Paul told them at the end of this particular book, keep an eye out for my signature. Look and see if it is my hand that has closed out the book. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand. And so he writes his name in large letters. Why did he do that? It's believed because he had poor eyesight. You know, some people uh, think that he had a condition in which, which, uh, which swole the eyeballs and made his vision blurred. Paul had a, you know, if you read the history of Paul, he had a lot of physical complaints going on. It's quite remarkable that he did what he did given the, uh, given the various afflictions that he had, not least of all those which he had incurred uh, being beaten uh, along the way as he went from place to place preaching the gospel. When Hazel and I were in Corfu just a few weeks ago, uh, I looked across at mainland Greece, and the thing that struck me about mainland Greece was how mountainous it is. And I thought about the Apostle Paul. And I thought, you know, we've come in here in an airplane, and you see people driving around smooth roads in a car, but the Apostle Paul had to hoof up and down those hills and through those forests and across rivers and all the rest of it in order to get the gospel to his next destination. And it took its toll on his body. But with with respect to his eyesight, because his eyesight was so poor, when he was signing his name, he had to write with a large letter. He wrote with large print. And that's how the churches knew that this particular epistle came from 
Paul. One last th- thought and then we'll, we'll close the book. Notice the word all in these final three verses. He says the Lord be with you all in verse 16. And he says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 18 be with you all. Now although he had just brought a reprimand and had some hard things to say at the end, uh, nevertheless his care for them as a whole fellowship held true. His prayer was for them all. Not just the people who were walking right, but the people who were walking disorderly as well. And he puts down his pen with a true pastor's heart. You see, his concern was for every single person in that fellowship. The suffering saint as well as the sinning saint. And these two epistles together remind us again and again, every chapter, that the Lord is coming and how we ought to conduct ourselves in the light of that truth. Clearly, Paul and the early church expected the Lord to come in their lifetime. And we should expect him to appear in our lifetime. In fact, we're now 2,000 years closer to the coming of the Lord than he was and they were. So really, when you think about that, the appearance of the Lord Jesus is nearer than it's ever been before. And so I would say to you as we close this book, let's live right, let's do right, let's be right as we look forward to his glorious appearing. And with that, we close the book. And Lord willing, come September, we'll open a new book. All right, that doesn't mean we're not having Bible studies in summer. It just means I'm not taking them. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs>